Okay, hello everyone, and welcome back to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark Architect. As always, I want to take the time to express my deepest, deepest gratitude to all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen into this podcast series where we talk through the process of realizing architectural projects and what it's like to work with an architect. We talk through the thinking behind the design of spaces and places. And today we would return to our regular programming, a solo episode with me talking through the concept of what an architect does. What are the core architectural services as of October 2022 in New South Wales? Last episode, we spoke about tender documentation relating to the building shell, which as it sounds is the external and internal elements that make up the building shell, like external wall cladding, roofing, windows, doors, floor, roof structure, internal walls, particularly for a house because the internal walls form the structural support for the floor above, the roof and the like. Basically, anything that if it were to be modified would change the overall shell or envelope. Now, as a recap, tender, tender documentation means, well, we're at this phase where we've received development consent from an improving authority, our DA, our development application, or a version of that has been approved. And we'd like to start building. To build, we need a builder, and it's remiss, it's risky, it's not necessarily the best way to proceed if you don't, from that builder, receive an indication of time and cost, how long it's going to take to build and how much it's going to cost to build it. To do that, we need to tell the builder what we want them to build, and that's what we describe in the tender documentation phase. And from that, the builder provides what's called a tender, which is a price that is offered for consideration, not locked in. And if it is acceptable, we lock them in and it becomes what we call a contract price, which is the cost of work plus GST. We sign them up and off we go. Or we negotiate, we modify the scope, we reduce some quality of some elements and so on. This episode, we're talking about internal fit out. Internal fit-out, some people might not appreciate, is something that architects get involved with, like a bathroom, including the tile wall finishes or stone floor finishes, the selection of bathroom fittings and fixtures, so the toilet pan, the taps, the sinks, the shower heads, the vanity cabinet that goes in the bathroom, the kitchen, benchtop, below benchtop, storage, doors, drawers, overhead cupboards, appliances selections office furniture layout, the bar itself in a restaurant, the kitchen itself in a restaurant, basically anything that could be stripped without it being at the expense of the building shell. Now, obviously there are situations where the internal fit out can overlap with the building shell. And as a result of doing a fit out, you revisit some elements of the building shell. It's not as binary to say you do building shell and that influences the interior. And the reverse is not true. That's not the case. And I'm going to give an example of that. 
However, in this example, we're trying to separate that and speak really to the interior. Now, remember here that as I've said from episode one, I want to demonstrate that each phase involves design. There might be some people that think a kitchen is a kitchen and it is what it is. And as I've stressed in many episodes and will continue to say for my career, if not beyond, I don't believe in this idea that design stops at some point and something else starts. I don't know what you want to call it, maybe documentation. To me, you're documenting the design and that act of documenting the design is a design exercise. The focus of the design changes. You go from broad brush ideas that are a response to client vision, to client brief, to more focused things, particularly in relation to the kitchen. If we're looking at the kitchen design, we're no longer looking at the roof form or the envelope or potentially the window configuration, though I'm going to challenge that in this example I'm about to give. However, it doesn't stop. It merely shifts focus. And I'm going to pick that up every episode with every guest and every phase we talk about. Anyway, we're looking at a kitchen, looking at the design of a couple of kitchens. I'm going to give some example stories and we're going to look at three subheadings. Remember, the focus here is design and design as a response to a client vision for the house or kitchen. And by vision, I mean the client brief. So... Sorry, I said three subheadings, actually four subheadings, though three is kind of a precursor to this tender documentation fit out stage, but we'll talk more about that in a second. So macro design documentation. So looking at bigger decisions, the bigger scale decisions. And as I said, this is somewhat of a precursor to the next phase, which is the micro design documentation. So detailing, what we call detailing. The material and finishes selections and the selection of fittings and fixtures. Now that sounds like a colloquialism, some technical jargon. What's a fixture? What's a fitting? Well, we say this term or these terms, fixtures and fittings, in lieu of what might sound more obvious, which might be appliances or at one stage we used to call them white goods. Though I was thinking about this the other day in regards to white goods. I don't know that as an architect I've ever selected something for the kitchen that is from the point of purchase white for what we used to call white goods. Anyway, appliances, but we don't say appliances because whilst that might be somewhere we'd go to somewhere like uh, winnings to select a cooktop, an oven, a dishwasher, a range hood, a fridge, that's not the sum total of those items within the kitchen. There's also the taps, the sink, and other elements. So we use this term fixtures and fittings. So the design process involved in the selection, sorry, the selection of fixtures and fittings. Okay, so they're the headings. Macro design documentation in regards to a kitchen. Micro design documentation, what we call detailing, materials and finishes selections and the selection of fittings and fixtures. Okay, so macro. So, as I've suggested before, the macro decisions in regards to the kitchen have probably been developed at some 
to a certain level of detailing prior to this point. So at the concept design phase, we're probably suggesting where the kitchen can go, what room it's in. That sounds strange, it's a kitchen, it goes in the kitchen. But if you've got an open plan kitchen dining living, well, it's part of that combined open plan space, for example. Or is it a space that's separate to all that? Is it in the north corner, south corner, west? Is it a parallel line of what we call cook line, which is the line of benchtop that includes cooktop, oven, and maybe some other elements, the range would above. Then a one meter gap, if you were to turn 180 degrees, you'd then see an island on that island. There might be prep components. There might be a sink, who knows? Those decisions, whether it's got a corner, well, we'll talk about a corner in a second, or it's one long line against one wall with uh, no returns, potentially no overheads or limited overheads, whether it's got what we call a walk-in butler's pantry, which is a separate room that you can slide or close a door off so that all the washing up, crockery, cutlery and the like can just be dumped in there. You close the door and you forget about it until the next morning when you open it up and go, that's right, we had people over last night. All that is what we're talking about in terms of this macro decision, and that's a design exercise. Now, one thing that we like to try and look at is this idea of the triangle, the working triangle within a kitchen. Now, what that means is the three main items of a kitchen being the prep or wash up sink, the cooktop and the fridge. So in other words, where we store our food, where we cook our food and where we clean our food prior to prepping or where we clean the items that we serve the food on, they are arranged on the floor plan in some sort of triangular configuration. So an example in one of the projects I worked on at uh, Bondi Beach, the cooktop is slightly spaced off where the fridge is. So the fridge is to the left of the cooktop with a space of about half a meter, maybe 600 which is enough for you to put pots and the like to the side of the cooktop if you like to, you know, prepare your things on the side and then put them into the fry pan or pot as it's being cooked. The fridge is right there. It's the next element. And then 90 degrees, sorry, not 90 degrees, the wash-up sink or prep sink is on a return corner to the right of that. So you turn 90 degrees and there would the sink be. Now you connect the dots you triangulate, you form a triangle or a version that's close to a triangle. And that's what we're trying to establish in these macro decisions. However, one vision I wanted to talk about, I had a client who has a project on the south coast of Sydney. And this project has an extraordinary view towards a very popular surfing point break. And the fact that it's a popular surf break doesn't really matter. It could be some other icon or some other outlook that's extraordinary, whatever it is. It happens to be this great surf break. And you can see the point break, not from where the current window is positioned. It's slightly off axis to the point break, parallel to the wall, a hole in the wall. Uh, and then there's a corner and another window around that corner in the same kitchen area that looks out to some incredible tree canopies. The actual outlook to the point break is on the corner, literally at the intersection of these two walls. 
And so he came to me, the client came to me with a vision of, I want to extend the deck that leads off this space, the dining room and kitchen. And to me, it looked like an incredible platform to be able to view this point break. However, why should that be limited to the deck? Why can't you have the opportunity while cooking up a meal? Pasta, your breakfast, eggs, a stir fry, whatever it is, and be cooking and then look towards a dissolved corner, a corner window. So we've opened up the corner and look out to that point break. What an incredible experience whilst undertaking the everyday activity that is using your kitchen cooking. And so the vision there, which is actually an extended vision that I developed, you know, what came first? Client said, we want a view to the point break, or I said, there's an opportunity for a view to the point break. Either way, it became the response to vision that the kitchen needed to do. The kitchen needed to include this external modification, which was to dissolve this corner. So it influenced the building shell. The other interesting thing is that the current kitchen was not big and there was a concern that for future proofing the house from a resale perspective and even just general use while he's there that it may not be big enough and therefore let's look at making the kitchen bigger if you make the kitchen bigger however you have to make the adjoining dining space smaller which seemed a shame we're extending the deck off the dining space but making the dining space smaller and the current kitchen had, ugh, insert Alfred Hitchcock uh, haunting music, or however it goes, sorry, a little bit of a performance interlude there. It had some returns, it had some corners. Ugh, corners, I just, yeah, I, I, I struggle with corners in kitchens, like a bench top that turns 90 degrees. And the current kitchen did this, one, two, two, three, four times. Is that right? One, two, three, three times. And the proposal had this and extended it further. Now, I want to be clear here that there are situations, times when client preference is to have a corner. I'm not saying that they're the end of the world and everyone should go and sell their houses now or rethink their design projects if they've got a corner by any stretch of the imagination. It's just that they come with a level of inefficiency. Whilst you could use the bench top, you know, as a place for your coffee machine, your toaster, your water filter or, or something, uh, under bench and certainly above bench if we're returning the corner. So an overhead, not, not on bench, overhead. They become very hard spaces to utilize and they become great spaces for you to store things that you never access or rarely access, particularly at the very corner. So I like to try and avoid corner kitchens where I can. Not always possible, but I do, I do try to. So instead of this footprint extending and becoming bigger, I challenge this idea instead, instead of making the kitchen bigger, let's make the kitchen work harder. So the current kitchen didn't have the most large size drawers. There was a lot of inefficiencies in the way the drawers were configured. It's, a, it's like, 30, 40 years old, by the way. It's not like it was done 10 years ago or something. No overheads and no tall storage spaces like a tall pull-out pantry. So on a macro level, we looked at the idea of, okay, let's increase efficiencies. Let's make every millimeter work as hard as possible from a storage perspective. Let's add some tall storage like a pull-out pantry that has multiple 
drawers for storage and let's not increase the size of the kitchen let's make it work harder per millimeter or meter squared okay and that was the response to client vision so two things there one was to make it work harder not make it bigger and to try and avoid some corners so we did delete the corners we had a parallel line for cooktop and then in front of that was a parallel line for prep bench that also was oversized so you can have a breakfast bar edge to it and then on that prep bench to the left side where it hugged a wall there's tall pantry that faces the kitchen side and the dining room side turn 180 degrees we've got the cook line cook line has cooktop oven below bench drawers to the right hand side is the fridge above we have a range hood and more to the point we've got this corner window that has this outlook to the point break so really exciting fantastic okay that's a macro decision and arguably we're working that up before we get to this detailing or specific tender documentation exercise at least notionally on a plan certainly for council application or as part of the building shell documentation we've placed the kitchen we've placed the kitchen elements however we haven't started to draw up the elevation of the kitchen and the cross-sectional details of the kitchen which is a good segue to the next heading which is detailing so as i've said in a previous episode detailing means the way that things generally turn the corner the way that different elements meet different materials meet floor meets a wall wall meets a ceiling joinery benchtop meets the drawers and doors below meets the adjoining wall and so on so here for this kitchen and a couple of other examples i'm going to talk through very briefly the idea was for the kitchen to be seamless integrated and when i say seamless that you read the space particularly bondi beach house and and the other south coast house where we want the kitchen to feel as big as possible and we want the space that the kitchen's within the combined open plan to feel as big as possible because on plan or certainly in some aspects it doesn't look as big as it might or as other places as other um, properties as other houses it looks if we're not careful the kitchen can be quite domineering and the space not feel as big and we want to avoid that we want to have a situation where we feel like we're in a room and that room has multiple corners walls surfaces that just are seamless and continual so in other words we see where the kitchen bench top is and we see where the doors and drawers are but it reads like a wall to the room that happens to have a bench top and doors and drawers in it this is this idea of integrated seamless think of it as similar as an integrated fridge or an integrated dishwasher that reads as seamless well we're trying to do that with the whole kitchen we're not trying to conceal it that gets frustrating close the kitchen down with doors or whatever and then open it up we're using the kitchen all the time and so to have to close it open it shut it whatever every time we're going to just get a drink or something or make a cup of tea or coffee that would be a little bit complex no we want it to feel like it's part of this overall space and that it's not jumping out at us so we want it to be seamless and integrated and we also wanted it to be somewhat recessive and this will come up when we look at materials and finishes but the idea is certainly in the Thoreau house the south coast house that we 
are really in the room focusing on this beautiful open corner window and the kitchen doesn't act like this little blind spot or distraction to that view. It's beautiful, it's seamless, it's elegant, but it's not this contrasting form, shape, color, tone, texture necessarily, at least in this case. And so on detailing, that leads us to how. How are we gonna to respond to this vision, this developed vision of integration, seamlessness, and recessive in the detailing of the kitchen? Well, a slight origin story, my own kitchen, and in fact, most kitchens I've lived in, are not what I would call seamless or integrated. With the exception of the developed kitchen that my parents did in the house that I was in when it was modified, when the kitchen was modified in my, my, when I was a teenager, certainly wasn't the case when we first moved in. Though definitely all the spaces I've lived in since I've left my parents' house are not what I would call integrated. And let me elaborate on this. In my own house, I have a situation where the kitchen has returned corners. <laughs> I, I didn't design the kitchen, I inherited it. And it has surfaces that are not aligned. Now I'll elaborate on that. It has a bench top that's in a contrasting color and that's not the end of the world. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's laminate, it's quite a busy finish. It's like a, it's trying to emulate a stone of some description. So it's got a lot of pattern texture and it's a teal blue. Anyway, when I touch the surface of the kitchen bench top and my hand turns 90 degrees to touch the edge of the kitchen bench, there's a slight rounding to that edge. In fact, when I say slight, it's a pronounced rounding. So it's quite a bullnose edge. Okay, so I really can see the edge defined as this blue laminate. And then as I turn another 90 degrees to the underside of the bench, my hand moves from that front surface to the door or drawer below. Uh, and there's about a 50 mil difference, five centimeter difference between the front. So when I look at these elements, they're not seamless continual. They're different alignments. And so I really notice that difference. It's 50 mil, but you notice it. And then on that surface below the door drawer, there's handles. The door and drawers are not this teal blue texture color. They're a white and the handles are, well, they're handles. So when you look from the dining space at the kitchen, it doesn't feel like a continuation of the other walls that happens to have a bench top doors, drawers, etc. It feels like a kitchen with pronounced handles and doors, drawers, bench top. Now, is that a problem? No, there's plenty of examples where that makes sense for me. As a busy person, as my wife is a busy person, we've got young children with this arrangement of a very textured top, misaligned edge, door and drawer handles, some of which are broken by my son being a little bit too eager with the way he slams and closes doors and drawers after he's pulled the crockery cutlery and the like out of the dishwasher as part of his chore. It can tend to look quite busy by default before I've even cleaned it or my wife and I have cleaned it. And then when it does get a bit dirty or messy, so there are, you know, evidence of preparing lunches and the meal that was just, we just had, like you have friends over and it's this fantastic night or family over, or you have a great night with the family. And then you remember 
despite how stressful your day was and despite how calming, relaxing and fun the exchange of eating the meal was, there is the dishes to clean, the kitchen to clean. And I look at it as somewhat of an overwhelming task, not necessarily because it's overwhelming in and of itself, but because if I don't do it, this kitchen that for me is already feeling a bit, it, it aggravates me on some level because of the way that it's designed. So if I don't attend to sorting out the, the dirty dishes and the like, then I get a little bit more angsty or frustrated. That's me. That's my response to this kitchen. So my vision would to be to make it more integrated and seamless because in my opinion, in those places where I've been, I've worked on projects where they, the clients have invited me to dinners or similar, and I've, and I've lived in their houses, I've minded their houses whilst they're away. And when there is a bit more of a mess in those spaces, I don't, depending on the extent, okay, if we're talking a full blown house party, okay, anything can be quite crazy the day after the, if you like the hangover day. However, in most cases, it doesn't feel necessarily to me as urgent to get on top of because of the, certainly my opinion, the calming situation of the kitchen being integrated and seamless already. So that urgency is not quite there for those kitchens, at least in my opinion. And I, I feel the opposite is true for my own kitchen. And so there's a little bit of an origin story as to why I like the idea of a kitchen feeling a bit more seamless and integrated. Because I certainly feel like when I'm in my kitchen, when I'm in my open plan kitchen dining space, that actually does have an incredible outlook to the ocean and a tree canopy beyond, that it feels like two rooms. It feels like a kitchen and dining space. Whereas if there was an effort to make the kitchen more integrated, it would feel like an open plan place to prepare and consume meals. And that's the point I'm really trying to get at. So for these projects, a strategy adopted is to look at a situation that's the reverse of mine. No handles, aligned bench top edge, two door drawers below, so that it reads more as a wall because there are less changes in the alignment of surfaces. So let's consider this for Bondo Beach House and the strategy at this stage for the South Coast House. If we were to get a ruler, or a, what we call a straight edge, a metal straight edge, and put it against the edge of the bench top, the finish of that bench top I'll talk to in a second, but the strategy for this alignment is that bench top edge aligns with the door or draw front below, and that door or draw front below has no handles. No handles. So aligned surfaces and no protruding elements like handles. Now, to get this work, the strategy then to open those doors or drawers is to not make them all what we call push catch, because then you're relying on a mechanism that might fail over time. Certainly in some parts of a kitchen, that could be something we look at, but to rely on them for something you use as often as a door or drawer below the benchtop could be troublesome. So it's not about pushing the door and having it release. It's about forming what we call a shark nose finger profile to the door or drawer below the bench. Now, some of you may have heard this term before and that's cool. The idea is if you were to draw a shark and I'm now drawing a shark nose in profile, if you think of the top of a shark, it's a horizontal line. And then you think of the tip, the nose of a shark, it's slightly rounded before an angled line that is where their mouth and teeth are. 
if you were to take that profile, basically a triangle with a rounded top, turn it 90 degrees, you have a profile of what we call a shark nose finger profile. So if you're to touch the bench top, you've got the edge of the bench top, you turn 90 degrees and you go into a recess and that might be two centimeters, 20 millimeter, basically the thickness of the door or drawer. And you hit a surface that we call a shadow rail, which is a rail of joinery, usually medium density fiberboard, depending on the detailing, it might be a bit of brass, might be a bit of stainless, it might be plywood, form ply, whatever. In this case, it was MDF. I'll talk about materials in a second. And it runs the width of the door or drawer as a recess. And it's in shadow, which is why we call it a shadow rail. We call it a rail because it's horizontal. And the door or drawer abuts that when it closes. And so if I touch the door front or draw front and I go to the top of that, I hit this rounding that is the shark's nose. And then it splays for an angle you know, 30 degrees or something along those lines. Different architects, different joiners have different ways of detailing this. But I like to add a little rounding to the corner and then it splays off. And the fact that it splays and there's a gap between the underside of the bench top and the top of the door or drawer, usually of about 2.5 centimeters, 25 millimeters, that's enough for you to get your hand in and pull the door or drawer open. So when you look, you've got this composition that's Bench top edge, 2.5-25 millimeter gap, drawer or door. If it's drawers, we usually go shallow drawers towards the top, certainly on the cook line side for crockery, cutlery, cooking utensils, and then, excuse me, and then another 2.5 or 25 millimeter gap before another drawer, another 2.5 millimeter gap before a bigger drawer towards the bottom, which might be where you store pots, pans, breadboards, Tupperware, whatever. The relationship, the heights of doors, drawers, and the like, that all varies from client to client, architect to architect. But something along those lines. So if you look, you've got the very bottom against the floor, which is where we have what we call a kick. It's a recess literally where you stand and you can kick a skirting or a kickboard, because that's where we're standing. And that is a dimension, maybe 10 centimeters, 100 millimeters. Before the first draw, finger pull, shadow rail, another draw, finger pull, recess, shadow rail, etc., etc., all the way to the top. And so that's a detailing exercise. And there's other ways you can do that. You could have cutouts in the draw. You could have the finger profile only going for a certain width of the draw. You could have the shadow rail, as I said, clad in a different material. But that's the detailing. And that detailing is a design exercise in forms the overall look and feel of the kitchen, which is or was intended to be integrated seamless in a continuation of the wall by this detailing exercise. Okay, so that's detailing and that's something we're defining at this stage. Now on to materials and finishes. I alluded to this. I have a laminate bench top. There's so many options for bench tops from certain metals, zinc, brass, copper, stainless steel, stone, timber, concrete, something you can work through or the design team can work through based on client vision and certain things that work well with the client's intentions. However, in this case, we wanted to look at stainless. Stainless is, as it sounds, it's a stainless material. It has an element of robustness and worked well with this design vision 
in uh, certainly one of the cases where we wanted something to look a little bit more raw and therefore earnest and have less layers of finishing over the original material, the base material. However, in one of the projects, project at uh, Glebe House, which was the project owned by the Bondi Beach clients before they moved to Bondi, the thickness of the bench top was 50 millimeters, five, uh, five centimeters. Here at Bondi Beach, we just wanted this really fine line, this seamless, remember it's a seamless kitchen that just happens to have this very fine line of bench top. So we wanted to look at a bench top that wasn't 50 mil, but was 10 millimeters, so one centimeter. And so initially we looked at this idea of it being a stainless steel plate that we put on top of everything, a plate of stainless steel. The problem for that is that stainless steel comes in a mill finish top and the edge when it's cut to form the size of the bench top will be a different finish to that mill finish top. And so you'll have this contrast. And if you have that contrast, this idea of seamless integrated kitchen is lost. So the builder suggested, how about we fold a plate so that you're getting the mill finish on the top, the side, the bench edge and the underside. And it continues this idea of integration. So that's what we looked at for the top. And then below, so many options for door and drawer fronts from laminates, veneers, plywood. The list is, there's a long list, but here we wanted it to read like it was part of the wall. So instead of a glossy polyurethane, which is a type of spray finish, we looked at the idea of a paint finish so that the textured paint finish on the adjoining wall was well, it was the same color as the door and drawer fronts. So it really does feel like it's seamless and integrated. That's not a universal response. It is a response we adopted here. Remember, we're trying to make it feel like one space. Certainly when you get to spaces where things are bigger or they're non-residential projects, looking at alternatives, which are quite more defined or have a little bit more texture makes sense. But here, white finish, painted, white finish to the doors and drawers and overhead elements so that it reads like a continuation of the wall. The other cool thing about painting is that if it does chip or is damaged, then the process of repair, whilst we don't necessarily recommend patching as a do-it-yourself exercise, it could be done. Whereas other finishes, the door or drawer front would have to go away and someone would have to sort that out. Okay. So that's materials and finishes in a, in a snapshot as a design exercise, continuing this idea of what is the client vision, what was the developed brief, and how are we responding to it? This idea of seamless, integrated, continuation of other elements of the room. The last one is fittings and fixtures. Now, I'm not gonna spend heaps of time on this, except to say that really, this has to be something the client, the collaborator owns. So whilst the architect, the design team can foot, put forward certain ovens and fridges and cooktops and range hoods and dishwashers that have worked well in the past and the measuring stick being, you know, how many warranty issues were there? Did it break down? What was the service quality like? How loud are the elements? How much energy do they drain? Are they gas? Are they electric? All that can be worked through and put forward. But ultimately the client's going to be the one all day, every day, maybe not every day, sorry, maybe not all day, uh, turning knobs and pushing buttons and getting used to the flow. Everyone has a particular way of cooking. Is it more 
fish? Is it more stir fries? Is it more pastas? Is it more raw? Is what what is it? Like that is a whole exercise. So the task really is to put some things forward and to go and review those in a showroom and push, touch, feel, etc. However, one thing we will say is that in terms of this topic of integration, that some of the selections we're going to have to look at in that respect. Now you can go full-blown integration and take it as far as an integrated fridge, an integrated dishwasher. However, that comes with a certain price tag and that's something to, to work through with the team. One thing I will say is that one thing that doesn't come necessarily with a big price tag, certainly for the value that it adds to the quality of the space, is a cooktop, an oven that is integrated within the bench top and the, the elevation of the joinery. So what I'm talking about is a separate cooktop to oven rather than a combined cooktop oven. I've lived in places with combined cooktop ovens. They do work. However, they certainly don't respond to this idea of overall integrated kitchen, benchtop, etc. So we certainly weren't looking at those things. The client for both these projects was very interested in induction cooktops, in electric elements, because there are some solar cells and things that were linked to the house. So the selection of that all played a role into the overall vision, to the overall project, whereas gas didn't really have a place. And on some projects, gas main supply may not be an option. I don't have gas in my street, for example, so I couldn't look at a gas cooktop, even if I wanted to. So they're things to take into consideration. All right, so that's it. That's all I wanted to discuss today. And these items we are developing in detail on a kitchen drawing, which includes a plan and it has this view marking that shows an elevation looking that way, that way, that way, that way. It shows the relationship of door, drawer fronts of kitchen sink, waste, tap, cooktop oven, all the things I described. It's describing the elements by way of annotations, which is little notes. It's putting dimensions on them. It's describing things at one particular scale and then maybe zooming in a little bit further to show them in more detail all to explain to the builder and their team what we want them to build. Remembering that it's not just going to the builder, it's going to the builder's team. That could include plumber, electrician, and most notably in regards to the kitchen, the joiner, who's gonna play quite a big role in how this kitchen is going to be realized. All right, that's it for today. Thank you very much for listening. We spoke about tender documentation relating to interior fit-outs. If you thought this show was relevant to a colleague, client, consultant, relative, or similar, please do share it. It really helps me or subscribe, leave a review, reach out to me at michaelclarkarchitects.com. Until next time, thank you for listening to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark architect. See you soon.